Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Chase Hughes. Chase is an author and speaker on the subjects of behavior analysis, body language, and behavior engineering. He is the founder of Ellipsis Behavior Laboratories and is the creator of the Behavioral Table of Elements. Chase frequently develops new programs for the U.S. government and offers his skills in training members of anti-human trafficking teams around the world. Chase is also the author of the best-selling book, The Ellipses Manual, Analysis and Engineering of Human Behavior. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. Can you tell me, Chase, a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you do? Sure. Uh, I got fascinated with human behavior probably when I was about 19 years old. I was at a bar in Waikiki Beach called Kelly O'Neill's. And, uh, I, and some girls turned me down one night. And I remember going home as just kind of a little 19-year-old, not knowing what the what the world was all about. I went straight to Google and typed in how to tell when girls like you. And I think I went through a couple reams of paper and just spent weeks studying uh, body language because I just I never wanted that to happen again. I never wanted to misread signals again. And behavior just became more and more fascinating to me. And when I started learning about persuasion, that pushed me to the limit of, of learning. And every time I got good at one skill of persuasion, I would constantly ask myself the same question. It was like, what, where's the end? Like, where's the wall that you hit? What's the limit of persuasion? How far can it go? And I think it's, it's been an endless endeavor uh, for me, along with my, my government training and the, the things that I do for the government. It's been an endless pursuit uh, to perfect the art of persuasion. I think it's absolutely awesome. I want to come back to the subject of persuasion. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Can you talk to us a little bit about, I mean, you started this journey and you mastered this skill set. If somebody is starting out and they're feeling similar to the way that you felt when you started out, how can they get better at reading behavior and the body language of others? I think that a lot of people will buy books on body language and it's it's really common when I'm training somebody, especially my elite clients. Uh, if you're paying me $5,000 to train you, the, the first piece of advice that I would give you is that you need to start seeing behavior for its own sake in the very beginning, which which means basically that you just start observing people without trying to interpret it. Because observing behavior takes up so much of your cognitive processes. It takes so much of your brain up. And then the interpretation part takes up a whole separate part of your brain. So in the beginning, get the observation down from a conscious behavior to an unconscious behavior so that you do it on a regular basis. And only then, I'm talking after weeks or even months, depending on how good you want to be, that's when you start learning the interpretive process of understanding what the behavior means. But you've got to get used, you've got to spend time getting used to seeing behavior for its own sake, without judgment, without interpretation. 
essentially just sort of beginning to build those reference points. So later on, when you're reading a book on body language, you can revert back to that. Is that is that essentially what you're saying? Sort of. Yeah, yeah. So as, as you move through conversations, you're watching the body. You're watching the other person's hands. You're watching their face. You're watching their how often they blink, how quickly their eyelids move, uh, how often they're breathing, whether or not they're fidgeting with their fingers or touching their face or licking their lips or adjusting their hair. But you're just seeing those behaviors without trying to make meaning out of it so that you're just observing the behaviors. And just doing that helps you stay uh, human in a conversation. So you're not just... 80% checked out, 80% of you is looking at this behavior and only 20% of you is actually involved in this conversation. So it really helps either to A, you start using videos online or B, just spend a lot of time investing and getting your brain used to seeing the behavior without trying to make an interpretation. And I have a tool which is, is free online unless you want the like advanced uh, military version that I designed. But it's called the behavioral table of elements, and it kind of resembles the, the periodic table. And it's pretty much every gesture, every movement or behavior a person can do, and it helps you to interpret it. But just having that on your phone or iPad or having it printed out somewhere, uh, this is the same thing that I use for police and government and military training that uh, trains uh, like it, it's basically designed for an intelligence operative to conduct a post-interrogation body language analysis. But it's basically it's a one page tool that helps you to spot gestures and spot spot behaviors that people do in conversation. And if you can get to the point where you're just basically seeing human behavior for its own sake, the part of interpretation will just kind of naturally come in as a byproduct later on. Yeah, that was my next question. My next question is, at what point does somebody try to shift from observation to interpretation? And you're saying it's, it happens naturally. I think it, it's very much a natural shift because the, the curiosity is going to get the best of you eventually. You're going to be doing the research. And then every time that you see behaviors and then you kind of go back to the behavioral table of elements and research and see what all those things meant, they'll start to concrete and solidify over time so that the interpretation part is kind of just a byproduct of you just watching. Chase, I had another question. I'm curious if somebody is listening to this and they want to know what behavioral clues or cues somebody might give if they were interested or disinterested in them, what might they be? Sure. I wrote a, a really cool article about this that mentions like 15 things that are, are commonly not discussed. And one of the, the biggest thing that you'll see when someone is attracted is hygienic gestures. And these are typically seen when you look away. And this is not something you'll find in like a men's health magazine. So let's imagine like a social conversation. And while I'm looking at a, a woman or while a woman's looking at a man, you're not going to make a lot of hygienic gestures. And what I mean by hygienic gestures is anything kind of designed to improve your physical appearance. So adjusting your hair, adjusting your clothing a little bit, licking your lips, those kinds of things will typically happen as soon as you look away. So if I were to look away, I would look out of the corner of my eye for hygienic gestures. But it depends on the context of the conversation. One of the least talked about is pupil dilation. So obviously our pupils dilate and constrict to control the amount of light coming into our eye based on the ambient lighting conditions of wherever we are. 
but they also are part of our fight or flight response. And they've been, there have been lots of studies done to show that our pupils actually dilate when we see something that we're physically or sexually attracted to. The study they did for this, they took men and women and exposed them to different photographs, such as a naked woman, a naked man, a picture of a woman holding a baby, and then maybe a, a guy getting tortured or something really graphic. And when we see things we don't like, our pupils actually constrict. And when we make eye contact with someone that we're physically or sexually attracted to, you can literally see a dilation from, let's say, four to eight millimeters or four to six millimeters of pupil dilation. And it's pretty easy to spot once you look for it a little bit. Um, that's one of the best indicators of attraction. It's funny. I've heard this idea references like smiling with one's eyes. Have you ever heard that? Absolutely. Yes. When, when people are saying someone's smiling with their eyes, we can typically, if you see a genuine smile, so if you just type in person smiling on Google images and bring up one of a genuine smile, you can pretty much reach up and cover the entire lower half of the face with your hand and still know that that person is smiling. And that would be kind of a, a genuine smile or what the scientists would call a Duchenne smile. So with a, a genuine real smile, the upper half of the face and these crow's feet around the eyes tend to tighten up. Even in babies, it's the exact same thing. So smiling with your eyes is just that uh, tightening of the crow's feet around the outer corner of the eye. What are some of the other things, I mean, we've, since we're on the subject of eye contact, what are some of the other things that are communicated through eye contact? I mean, there's also a sense of dominance. I mean, there's a lot of different things. And there's, at least in dating, from our experience, the idea of eye contact becomes really important in courtship and attraction. I'm wondering if you could maybe expand on that. Sure thing. So uh, we call that gaze time, G-A-Z-E time. And uh, in the United States and almost everywhere in developed society, the average or like the socially acceptable time to maintain eye contact with another person is around seven seconds before someone will look away. Even if it's just a brief break in eye contact, it's about seven seconds. And when you have extended gaze time or that extended period of eye contact, that's a very strong indicator of, of attraction. So if it starts going over the seven second mark, that's a pretty good indicator of attraction. And I know there's a lot of things that are communicated with eye contact, uh, but those are usually like a, a very subtle conversational type of communication. And while you're looking at a person's face, another one of the attraction signals that we talked about earlier is nostril flaring, which you don't typically read. And the science behavior nerds call this wing dilation when we talk about the nose. And typically during a conversation, especially when you're listening to someone talk, your nostrils will flare to oxygenate your blood. So we usually, instead of taking in a huge breath through our mouth, the nostrils will flare up to just to oxygenate the brain a little bit. And in the classes I teach with law enforcement, this is one of the actually one of the eight warning signs to look for for an attack if an attack is about to occur. So there's actually a lot of crossover between violent behavior pre-indicators and indicators of arousal. Why do you think that is? I think both of the things uh, are 
a trigger of the reticular activation system, which is kind of just like a precursor to the fight or flight response. But the reticular activation system in the brain is something that's in your brain that's only designed to look for social value or value and threats. So something that can kill you or something that can help you. So when something is there, let's say George Clooney walks into a restaurant, the, that social value will activate the reticular activation system. So that's when you have nostril flaring, you have pupil dilation, and we have people opening up. It's the same exact behaviors to get ready for, to accept someone else's social value as it would be to run away from a, a gunman. So essentially somebody's doing analysis of the other people in an environment they're in. Yes. So you'll see some pretty similar behaviors. And as, as always, there's, there's uh, hair playing as well for an attraction signal. And there's kind of, I would say there's four basic ways you can look at someone adjusting or playing with their hair. So number one would be just playing with their hair with their palm facing out, which would be the number one indicator of attraction. Two would be playing with your hair with the palm concealed from view. And we typically expose our palms when we want to appear trustworthy or non-threatening or friendly. And number three would be just adjusting or fixing the hair, which would just be a basic hygienic gesture. And number four is something that is a little bit different. This is like when a woman pulls the hair away from the back of their neck. This is called a ventilation gesture. So during uh, anxiety or stress, a woman will, will move that hair because heat builds up between the back of the neck and the woman's hair. And this is kind of a, just a way to ventilate. And when I say that the woman is experiencing anxiety or stress, that doesn't mean that she's not attractive. It may be stressful um, just meeting a guy that she's really attracted to and wanting to put on her best face. I feel like guys listening to this can definitely identify with this. It's like the stress that they feel when yeah, they're around someone they're attracted to. What do I do next? Does she like me? Are these are the type of things you're talking about? Yes, for sure. And a couple of the things that if you're specifically looking for attraction signals is how close they're willing to place their property to you. So if you're at a bar or a restaurant, how close is her, her cell phone to you on the table? And how willing is the other person to interact with your property? So if I put my phone or my keys on the table, how willing is that other person to interact with the property? So you're suggesting asking somebody to interact with the property and then seeing how they react? Or what do you? how are you suggesting that somebody test this? So if you laid your car keys or your phone on the table and the other person was comfortable picking it up and looking at it or fiddling with it, that would be a really good indicator. Does this extend over to like the sharing of food or drinks? Because in some way, like that's part of a person's property. I'm curious um, what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. I would say if a person is comfortable sharing food or drink, there's definitely a sign of trust there, which could be a pre precursor for attraction. What are some other indicators of trust? And, and maybe you can talk about why trust is important when you're trying to pursue or court someone. I would say the number one signal of trust is that the person is comfortable being vulnerable. So you're not seeing a lot of closed off behaviors and you're not seeing a lot of like only good stories. So you'll, you'll hear stories from the other person of when a time when they screwed something up or when they're really vulnerable, but you'll see a lot of open gestures. And we, we, I think everybody knows body language is about two thirds, give or take of communication. So it's, it's vitally important. 
And when we talk about body language, anything that causes fear in the body, you can just kind of imagine we're protecting all of our organs. Our shoulders kind of go up to protect the carotid artery, the humerus or the top bone in the arm uh, where the brachial artery is kind of sticks in towards the torso. The legs start to close up and we, we're less likely to expose our wrists, which have another giant vein in there. So any kind of fear or anxiety closes up the, the places where we have arteries in our body. And when we're open with another person, you'll see open gestures, shoulders down, more palm exposure, more movement of the upper arms, a more expressive uh, vocabulary. So more expressive gestures during the conversation. And you'll typically see the more interested someone is in you, the slower or less often they'll blink. So like if you think of the last time you went to see like a really good movie, your blink rate might have been around 11 to 12 blinks a minute, sometimes down to seven. And the last time you took the SATs, like the math portion of the SATs, the blink rate can go up to like 55 without us even noticing the difference. So the less often someone blinks, the more interested they are typically in what's right in front of them. And that's another way you can gauge the moment, you can gauge the conversation. If you're talking about a really cool movie with a, a woman that you're speaking to, and all of a sudden you start talking about how you changed out your own transmission in your car, and you see the blink rate go from a 12 to a 40, you'll know that you need to change the subject and you're becoming less interesting. What are some other signs that you might be becoming less interesting? I would say fidgeting behavior. And anytime someone is making less eye contact or looking around the room, I remember hearing a some pickup instructor one time called this value scanning to where the the value that she placed on you is is lessening. So the the woman or the other person would look around the room for someone with value that they can go and speak to. Or anything with value. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you, you were talking we were talking earlier about signs that the other person is opening up but if somebody's listening to this and they're getting signs that they are not opening up either the person they're interacting with is telling them or maybe they start to see that person shut down and they think well maybe it's actually something that i'm giving off or maybe uh, they become aware from some other external or internal indicator that the, this idea that they're uncomfortable or not opening up what are some things that they can do in that moment or the, in their next interaction in order to try not to give off that message. Because I think sometimes when I speak to my clients or I watch my clients and talk to them afterwards about their interactions, I find that their anxiety sometimes can manifest into their body language and give mixed communication to the person they're interacting with. Yes. So I'll cover that in, in a few parts here. So first, anytime that your clients are experiencing anxiety, it's only because of an attachment to a desired outcome. You don't think that happens as a consequence of trauma as well? It could be, but the, the consequence of trauma means that you need a certain outcome from the situation or you need to avoid future trauma, which is also a seeking an outcome, even if it's, it's on an unconscious level. So maybe there is some trauma in the past, but I'm, I'm talking about most of the time, social anxiety, 
especially in conversations, uh, can be, you can have social fears, of course, but there's usually, especially in the dating world, it's when there is an attachment to an outcome. And so, of course, somebody, somebody could have had some serious trauma in their past that could be responsible for producing some of that anxiety. And if, if anybody does realize that they are producing this negative behavior in another person, of course, there are some physical ways to change that. And one of them is opening up your own body language a little bit. And you want to always start. So if you want someone to kind of start following your body language, start by adjusting your posture to where you have better posture first. So think of the last time you saw someone sit up or you saw someone even heard someone mention the word posture and it made you sit up. Just that alone uh, is something that people kind of automatically respond to when they realize their posture has become poor. So what I would recommend. So if you think of the last time you were in a conversation, you saw the other person sit up straight and you had that internal dialogue like, well, I need to sit up straight, too. But if I sit up straight right now, they're going to realize that I'm just doing exactly what they just did. Have you ever had that? Yeah, absolutely. OK, so the way you avoid that is you sit up straight and then look away and give them that little comfort zone to adjust their posture while you're not looking. That gets them to start following your behavior. So after you adjust your posture to where you have better posture, you look away, kind of give them permission to do that without you staring at them so that they're more likely to do that. They're also more likely to follow your behaviors a few minutes after that. So then as soon as you've got them to follow your posture, you start creating open gestures with your own body language and they'll be more likely to follow that too. So if somebody has, uh, let's say their arms are crossed, for instance, there are a couple of physical ways you can do this to where you hand them a pen or hand them your phone and have them look at something. Because when you change the physiology, you're also changing the psychology of the situation. So there are ways you can do that just to kind of get them to uncross their arms for a minute. And then while they're looking at your phone, you continue to display that open behavior. But as a, as a corollary to this, the more authority or value that you have, which are kind of almost interchangeable terms, the more authority that you have, the more likely that person is to do exactly what you do. So, for instance, if you come in looking really nervous, you're far less likely for someone to follow your lead. Authority matters almost more than any skill that I could possibly give you. And there, there's five character, personal character traits that create obedience and followership in other people. And I think they're the same five qualities. This is my opinion here. Uh, that also create attraction, especially for men. So the, the five traits uh, are confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and enjoyment. And one of the things that, that people really overlook is that if I taught you all these physical tricks, I taught you how to manipulate someone's body language, I taught you how to blink, I taught you how to smile, how to give off the perfect confident body language, in a conversation, we've all had that experience where we're talking to someone and everything looks right on the outside, but we have an internal feeling that something is not right. So we produce those internal feelings in other people. And these are based off of micro gestures that we make that the other person's subconscious is interpreting. So think about the last time you went out to a party 
and like you left a huge pile of laundry uh, that you knew you should have done, but you you gaffed it off and you didn't do it. Or you left dishes in the in the sink, or you're getting credit collection stuff in the mail, and you know you shouldn't be going out spending a bunch of money, but there you are. So while that's going on, there's a part of your brain that's sort of dedicated to remembering that there's unfinished business or like that continually reminds you like I've done something irresponsible. I'm not really congruent with discipline. Even though I can fake discipline, I know for a fact that I don't really have it. There are micro movements that we transmit. Every woman that you could ever possibly talk to has had a conversation where everything looks great on the outside, but they don't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. I think about our coaching, right? And I mean, there's lots of different ways that I could do this, but I've generally taken all the questions that people have asked me over the last decade now coaching, and I can distill them down into one of five categories. The very first is self, uh, stuff all related to self. And when we talk about self, we're talking about getting into a place where you feel good emotionally, financially, psychologically, physically. But I find that they come up over and over and over. And like, it might be a client who I remember one time I was coaching a guy and we're standing in line and he's in my dating mastery program, which is sort of our premier group program. We run them around the United States and a couple other countries. And he goes, I would never bring a girl home right now. I, my apartment looks like it belongs to a frat kid. And, and this guy made several hundred thousand dollars a year, worked for like the biggest investment bank in the United States. I mean, had a lot of shit going for him and was a educated, good looking guy. Uh, he'd actually had no experience with women though. He was a, a virgin in his forties, early forties. And I told him, I said, I don't know what the fuck you're doing here. <laughs> you need to go home and clean your apartment and, or get your apartment into a shape where uh, you think that you can bring somebody back and then come back. <laughs> and uh, I love the guy to death. And it's sort of hard advice. And, and uh, I think got, got him thinking. But I'm like, you need to prepare for success, man. But if you don't feel good about something that you can control, then you should make a change. And then the other categories, if somebody's feeling better about themselves, then we start focusing on meeting people. You go, how do you meet somebody? For men, a subset of that would be women. Uh, a subset of that would be women that they would want to date if they're straight guys. If uh, It's going out and meeting people. And it's hard to go out and meet people unless you feel good about these things that you talked about. The next one after that for us is seduction. So somebody's met somebody and they want to move it romantically. Maybe they just met them or maybe they, they're a friend or someone they work with, whatever. It's in their social circle. How do you do that? And then next is relationships. And then has, how do you build a partnership? And then at some time, at some point in this process, usually something goes wrong and they're back at the beginning trying to figure out how to get themselves into a place where they feel good again. Like for example, if somebody just got through, went through a breakup, uh, oftentimes they're in a bad headspace and it manifests in all kinds of different ways that people are not aware of. And so I went on this long tangent because I think it's super pertinent to the things that you're talking about. That is a fantastic example of that guy. I would be willing to bet anything that if just to sum it up, if you don't have your shit together, it's going to leak out and people are going to feel it. We developed over the course of probably eight years, we developed a thing called an authority self-assessment matrix to where you can rate yourself on a one to a five on all five of those qualities. So it's basically 
a bunch of blocks to where block, if you're a block one, that's called being, you're a burden, basically on society. Block two would be developing, block three would be positive, four is inspirational, and five is automatically contagious. So like if your discipline is really high and you're doing all kinds of stuff, your discipline is at a point where other people just hanging around you go home that night and they've got more discipline or they're just that inspired that they automatically just start acting more on their lives to where you just you're you're no longer just inspirational to others but your behavior is contagious i have some theories about why this makes sense to me and i see some consistencies in our coaching but i'm wondering if you could go into a little bit more depth about each of these five things because i, I want to make sure that the person who's listening to this is on the same page as you. Sure. So by confidence, uh, I only mean that it's A, a kick-ass relationship with yourself, and B, that you have certainty of outcome. Just that you know, not that you don't, you're not certain of a particular outcome, but you're certain that stuff is going to work out in your best interest. You're certain that you're going to get it done. And when you go around, you've always got a plan B or plan C, which helps you to maintain confidence in most scenarios. You're just being sure of an outcome. That could be even everyday stuff, right? Like you're going to make a sandwich and you feel confident you're going to have that outcome, right? It could be driving to the store, your, your confidence in your ability to drive. It could be kissing a girl. I think that's what you mean. Is that what you mean? Yes. And I would say, just like you said, uh, if, if you don't have confidence uh, in one area of your life, it's going to be missing in other places. So it's got to be a through and through. It's got to be part of who you are, not just a few tricks you learn on the internet on how to fake confidence. Uh, and that's one thing I see. It's really common with these pickup communities is these tactics are ways to fake like you're a real man and fake like you have your shit together. And it, it, it leaks out if, if your stuff's not if you don't actually have your shit together it leaks out i like this because i i think about when i talk about confidence and i've lectured on it and i've been lecturing on it for a long time i talk about the correlation between competency right and we don't always feel competent in everything that we do otherwise uh if you're doing that you're never trying anything new and oftentimes if you're a person who's that like even pe people who are very structured tend to need uh, some growth in their life to feel they find that meaning between that structure and that chaos, that growth. And even people who are less, uh, uh, less structured, they tend to be more creative types or they're more, they oftentimes find meaning in structuring themselves to actually get some shit done. Right. So a, a person who's an artist and they're really into expression by sort of habit or innately, the idea of structuring themselves and actually producing work is where Oftentimes, in my experience, I find that they find meaning. I, I think there's some really interesting ideas here, but probably the most important one that I keep thinking about as you're talking is just this correlation between confidence and competency. Do you do you agree with that? I think there there is a correlation, and I think when there is no competency, uh, that that a naturally confident person will just be okay with learning, and they'll be okay with uh, uncertainty. This is funny because I, I remember being at a lecture with another dating coach and he was saying that anytime the conversation doesn't move in a direction that you want to move into, 
just change the topic to something that you know very well. And I thought about it, and I've been around some really socially fluent people. Like I used to mess around politics and did that to the presidential level. I've been around a lot of successful business CEOs. I mean, just a lot of very socially successful, uh, socially fluent people. And I'm like, I don't know fucking any of them that do that who are really truly confident. Most of them, if they don't know something, they go into like learn mode. Like they want to learn about the person. They want to learn about that thing. It's only the people who are have some type of deep insecurity where they go back and try to cling to something that they feel comfortable with in order to retain that power. Yes. And that's actually not confidence. That's just val- that's social validation. That's, it's, it's such a good point. And when you talk to somebody who has uh, a tremendous amount of success, like the people you're talking about, they make you feel interesting if they don't know what you're talking about. So if they're not familiar with your topic, they'll ask you more questions about it. And they'll ask you what you love about it. And they'll they'll go on a journey to find out more. Yeah, I think I think this is awesome. Is there anything else you want to add into that or do you want to move into the next topic because I think this is fascinating and very useful for the people who listen to this. Sure. So that like if I was just to kind of rattle off uh just from my memory here what we have on level 5 of of confidence. It'd be like you're able to converse with anyone at any time. Uh, You receive criticism well. Uh, You have a positive self-image. No need for reassurance. You take action without reservation. Uh, You don't allow negativity in your life. Um, Setting goals is really big, too. I think, and that's a part of confidence. And once you're at the level five, others will start to emulate their behavior. And I think if you're at a level five of confidence, you don't make other people ever feel less confident. You increase the confidence of those people around you. And we all know people like this, right? It's that person that when we're around makes us a better person. Yes, and it's 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 magnetic. And there's no way around it. You can feel that in a conversation. What is the next one? It was discipline. And when I say discipline, it means being two things for yourself. One is butler. And two is disciplinarian. And so the first one by butler, I mean that you are the butler of your future self. So the present tense self today is thinking always about the future tense version of yourself. So like think about the last time you spent, you stayed up way too long watching, binge watching something on Netflix. And then the morning version of yourself was like, ah, the guy screwed me over. But the nighttime version of yourself didn't give a shit about the you that had to wake up in the morning. So this is where you get into like being your own butler. You lay out your clothes the night before. You pay your bills on time. You prep your meals, whatever it is, taking care of your future self. You go to college. You're not going to college for your present tense self. You're doing all of these actions for your future self. So when your future self can always be thankful for your present self and is always looking back at your at your own actions with gratitude. So you're always looking back at your actions and being thankful for what you did in the past for yourself. So you're setting things up for yourself. I had a client of mine who was doing a PhD at MIT. And I remember, I brought this up on the podcast in the past, but I remember he had just broken up with his girlfriend and he met me on Harvard Yard. I was taking classes at Harvard for the semester. And he met me on Harvard Yard and he just was sort of a mess trying to figure out how to get her back and what to do next. And the first thing I said to him was, 
your fucking shoe has a hole in it. And he's like, <laughs> what? And he looked down and I'm like, I can see your big fucking toe. And uh, I'm like, do you think a girl wants to date a guy who he can see his toes through his shoes? And it just hadn't occurred to him. And it made me think of another conversation I had with my best friend growing up who later went into the military and went into the special forces. And he said one of the first things they make people do, you start going through boot camp, you got to make your bed every day. And it's these small steps. And sometimes they're hard and sometimes we get distracted by life, but it's these small habits that we build upon washing your dishes every day. And it goes back to this guy that I was talking about earlier who said he was embarrassed to have somebody come back to his apartment. As you said, these things end up in the back of our mind and they affect us. And 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 I don't expect for any of my clients or even myself for my life always to go <laughs> to go perfect. There's times when shit goes wrong. Somebody passes away. There's an unexpected business situation. And these things have an effect on us but when we ignore them, they eat at us. And, and it's just so important to go back. And and when you – doesn't matter who you are. I mean, I know people who are extraordinarily wealthy and powerful who also have very similar problems to some of the guys I talk to or gals I end up talking to her just getting off the ground. And life is a, a complex maze of events and experiences. But I, I think that I really like this because – I see this pattern in my life when things are going really well. And I see this pattern in the people around my life who have been extraordinarily successful. Um, it's just these sort of little habits and refining these little habits that sort of create these efficient, it creates efficiency, but it also just sort of creates less things to think about. And these are just some of the things that come to my mind. I'm wondering if you could, I want you to keep going, but I wanted to throw that in and maybe you can expand or. Absolutely. Those are such good examples too. That's, that's it. That's having that discipline. And when you go to bed at night, the past tense, you made the bed for you. So at that point, you're, you're always looking back at your past tense self going, thanks, bro. Appreciate it. You know, you're really looking back and you're, you're thankful for your behaviors back then. So when the present tense you is always focused on the future you, uh, stuff will start to come together in your life. It's guaranteed. The other thing I think about is just picking up new skill sets, right? And so I'll use an example. I started taking piano a couple of years ago and I started taking piano lessons and I did that consistently for about two years. And then my teacher took off. Uh, went to Europe for a summer and then I was or started riding my skateboard, crashed it on the way back from the gym, couldn't really use my hand very well for about six or seven months. And I've just watched my piano skills as a consequence degrade, right? And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to go back and find a mentor again and whether it's my old teacher or find a new teacher, a new mentor uh, in order to continue that consistency because I found in my life, anytime I do something, if I'm really confident and competent in it, if I take a break from it, whether it's going from to the gym or piano or going out and socializing, it doesn't matter what it is, internet marketing, maybe I was messing around with coding for a while. Anytime I take a break, there's some level of atrophy. And there's times in, in my life where it makes more sense to focus on one thing than another. But if something is important to you, that consistency is incredibly important in continuing to develop that skill set. I mean, there's a ton, ton of science around this, but... I just also wanted to throw that in there because I, hopefully it connects with people listening. 
For sure. I, I totally agree. I've gone through the same thing, uh, setting goals myself. And once when you make something important and you make it a priority, then it becomes a priority because, you know, people say they don't have time to go to the gym or I don't have time to do X, whatever. It's never really a time problem. It's just a priority problem. Yeah. And that's a great point, right? The richest person in the world or the most productive people in the world still have the same amount of minutes in a day or hours in a week or minutes in a week or whatever that anyone who's listening to this does, right? So it's something that, I mean, it's it's really interesting because in that way, you're sort of time-wise, you have an equal playing field, but how does somebody set these goals and build these sort of productive systems? And I'm always talking about sustainable systems. I bring it up all the time. People around me probably drives them crazy, but I'm like, is that a sustainable system? (laughs) Like, is it going to be a sustainable all the time? I'm constantly talking about that. How do you build sustainable, sustainable systems? But I I think this is a really good point. And to the subject of goals, you started talking about that. If somebody's listening to this and they feel like they need to set some goals are there any quick tips that you have? How many goals should somebody have uh, when they write them down? Should they just write down all their goals? Should they be focused on a certain amount of goals in one time? Should they have accountability systems? Is this something that you feel comfortable talking about? Or is there something that you can reference the people listening that they can use in order to to sort of get some growth and movement in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not like a self-help or a like a goal setting kind of a guy uh, for when I speak to people. But uh, personally, uh, having been in the military for 20 years and working in Naval Expeditionary Combat Command, uh, there's, a, there's a lot, you know, they, they teach you a whole lot. And I would say managing my, my company, writing a, a number one best-selling book and all of this stuff, you, you, I couldn't have done it without goals. And I set around 13 or 14 semi-big goals a year. And I lay out, I have a giant laminated calendar from like Office Depot. And I backdate those goals. So I put that on maybe December 31st or November 12th or whatever date I want to accomplish, whatever goal that is. And then I make a long list of the milestones. What exactly do I have to accomplish week by week and month by month uh, in order to get there? Will I need to be here at this time? So then I go back on that calendar and from the goal, I go backwards every single week. What exactly needs to be done? So those are all there on the wall. They're actually in my kitchen. And every Sunday night when I'm planning out the week, I sit there in front of Google Calendar and I'm planning out every possible moment that I can to make sure the goals come first, everything else is second. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. 
All great men are members of a community and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious and I know that you are about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a priority of resources, right? Priority of time, priority of money. Pri- like, and, and one thing I think it's important for people to realize is that hierarchies are just part of life. There's going to be people who are going to have advantages over you just about every area of your life, likely every single area of your life. doesn't mean people are going to fully utilize those, but people are going to start ahead. But you can craft yourself and build yourself into whoever you want to be. And I know, understand that there's some like theoretical limitations to that, but just I think it's a really important thing to understand is it's easy to become resentful of people who are further ahead and say, you know, the system's fucked up, like it's not fair. But the reality is, is that you have control over yourself. You have control over the way that you react to things. You have control over your behaviors. You can set goals. Uh, you have control over the things that you focus on. Are you focusing on reacting to people? Or are you focusing on building your life, building towards your goals? And I really like this idea. Um, I think that it's a super, super awesome idea. So, And I think it's people are listening to this. There's a lot of people are listening to this, I think, will resonate with it. I'm wondering if you could talk about the next one was what? Was it gratitude? Leadership. And all I mean by leadership is you are confident enough and you live your life in such a way that it's contagious to other people. A true leader produces automatic follower behavior in other people, even if you're setting the example for your boss. So whether it's through maturity or just caring for others, I think living completely living out the philosophy that we rise by lifting others will give you leadership training like no other. Yeah, I think that's great. What if somebody wants to, they want to develop their leadership skills, are there anything that you could think of that would be a good place to start? Uh, I would say if, uh, I mean, this isn't a cool tactical answer, but if you get your life into a place where you're comfortable with everyone around you doing exactly what you do and you're comfortable with all of your subordinates and all of your managers living exactly like you live and then start working on leadership skills and don't start learning these skills or reading these books on how to manage people effectively or these john c maxwell 360 degree leadership books until you've got your life to a place where you're comfortable with everyone you know following your example And if you have uh, kids, you're comfortable with your son growing up exactly like you, or you're comfortable with your daughter marrying someone that's exactly like you are. Why why is it important for somebody to be comfortable with people mirroring them or people following what they do? I would say if, if you have any sort of discomfort whatsoever about the example you set for others, uh, that's the first and biggest problem that you would face as a leader. How would that manifest? Any time that uh, you are not living in a way that's setting the example for others, you're not behaving as a leader because the the leader's first priority should be to live as an example or set the example uh, even when other people aren't looking. And if your life is not that way, 
you're going to have incongruent communication. Just like when we talked about pickup, um, if, if your life is not congruent with the behaviors that you're displaying. Um, and if you're not congruent with or if you're not comfortable with all of your employees doing exactly what you do or your subordinates uh, living like you, then that's where leadership should start. So leadership should produce automatic uh, followership. It should be it should be contagious. What I started thinking about was the previous two things you said, right? Confidence and discipline. If somebody is confident, and we'll use the word I chose, like uh, competent, so they, they, they're competent in the thing that they're doing, or they're competent in the craft, they're competent in the way that their life is running, and they, they're disciplined, they're able to maintain that, they create a sustainable system, they're able to maintain that, that thing, and they're continuing to, to build and grow, then what happens is people will begin to emulate them because it's a process that's working. Right. And this manifests not only in sort of the behaviors of the, of the tasks or the sequence of tasks. How do you set up your calendar? How do you set up your day? Like, how do you, whatever? It also starts manifesting. You'll hear, see people mirror body language. And so you'll see this in lots of different ways. But I, I think this is really interesting because I can see the direct correlation between the, the previous two things that you said. Yeah. And that's, that's the reason that we put them in this order. And this whole thing is on one piece of paper. I'll send it to you if you want to put it in show notes or or share it with your audience for sure. Uh, it's a one through five grading system. I definitely would love you to do that. Let's move on to the next one. The next one is what? Gratitude. And that just means you're you're saying thank you every day, not just with your words, but with your behavior and your actions. And you're just saying thank you internally. And some of it can manifest while you're eating, even even thinking about small things like the farmer who made the food that you're eating right now and just appreciating things uh, where other people might become bitter. So like you're sitting in traffic, uh, just that moment and taking that moment to just in the beginning, you're going to have to force yourself, obviously, but force yourself to realize like, hey, I'm living in the United States. I wasn't born in Somalia. I don't have a life-threatening disease right now. Uh, there's trees over there that nobody else is noticing. And just making the decision to live on that higher level of awareness. I hate uh, to quote Tony Robbins, although I love the guy. I just, uh, I, I really firmly believe that you're going to get what you focus on. You're going to see what you focus on. Yeah, it's awesome. Actually, I love Tony Robbins too. I haven't been to a seminar in years, but I, I mean, I remember him talking about the same concept and just the idea that people will buy a car and, and not really notice it. And then they're on the street and they notice everyone else who has that same car. Or he also used an example of driving down the road and he, or driving on a racetrack and how they tell you not to look into the turn because you're going to move in the direction that you look. And it comes up in different ways, but I think it's a really great, I think it's a great point. Absolutely. And I, I remember he had an exercise in a seminar where he said, all right, everybody, you have 30 seconds. I want you to memorize everything in the room that's red. Yeah, that's a better example. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> then he says, OK, now close your eyes. Now tell me everything that you saw that was green. Yeah, I, I remember that example. That was quite profound for me. That's a, that's a way better example than I had. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's true, right? Because I remember doing that in And then he added on, like, how many of you guys were bullshitting yourselves and you saw kind of a burgundy, but you said it was red? Or you saw like a light, uh, light pink and you said, well, that's probably red. And you counted that, too. And he says, when you're focusing on it, you're also going to see 
stuff that isn't there that but that might be similar. So you, you're, you'll see even more. So when you start to focus on it, you'll see more of it. Yeah, and that's hard, right? Um, I, I think about some of the congestion that's happening the last few years and for example like the me too movement and just sort of some of there's a lot of women who have some frustrations that in new york city i see it <laughs> i see the things that they're frustrated about but i all, i've also seen how it's affected guys who are really great guys who are now terrified to interact with women um because they think that any type of in that advancement at all is some form of aggressive behavior and now I know now I know women who are frustrated <laughs> because guys <laughs> feel that way and they feel like well guys are not making moves or they have a guy that they like and they want him to make a move. So it's really it's interesting. Um I'm I'm using that example because uh, so much of our coaching ends up around dating and it's something that I've been hearing more and more, but it happens in so many areas of our life. You're around a lot of negative people, you're going to start to see the world in a more negative light. If you're reading about a lot of horrible stories that are happening in, in the media or the world, then you're going to start to see the world through that lens. And so um, I think this is an important point because in my experience, our emotions really are contagious, right? And so um, you talked about gratitude. If you're really thankful for the things that are immediately around you, and I understand this can be difficult or somebody might not be in a place where they feel like they're grateful for very many things. But when, if you can get to that place where you start to appreciate the things that right in front of you that you have to be grateful for, then it's it's easier to begin to transfer to things that you're grateful in others and start to communicate that gratefulness. I have a friend of mine who said that she, I mean, this is a little bit different, but I'm thinking about this as we're talking through it. And she has a, a young daughter and the girl is one of the most beautiful, open people I've ever met in my life. And she said when she takes her daughter to school every day, they look and they say hi to every person that walks by. And she said that as she's holding her hand, like she's waving, saying hi to construction workers and hi to people delivering the mail and hi. And, uh, so many people in our society are scared of strangers and it's really, I mean, obviously you have to protect a child um, from some of the dangers that are inherently in the world, but it's so beautiful to see her, the way that she's, she's beginning to teach her child to like be grateful and open to the world. And her daughter rebels against her sometimes <laughs> around this, but yeah, it's just, it's absolutely awesome. And what was the last thing? So after gratitude, it's what? After gratitude is enjoyment. So, and this just means seeing the best in others, um, encouraging other people in their goals and their dreams, lifting other people up, making a positive impact on anyone that you meet. And I think after a while, you'll start to be seen as the rock in, in stressful situation. And this enjoyment also gives you a tremendous amount of composure. And composure is one of the factors, I think, that is the one of the most overlooked persuasion tactics is just being a composed person. How does that affect persuasion? Well, we humans are hardwired to obey anything that we see as socially authoritative or actual authoritative. So like a, for instance, a person in a security guard's uniform. So there've been hundreds of studies done and, uh, have you heard of the Milgram experiment? Uh, I may have, but if somebody's listening to this, I want you to expand on it. 
Uh, I'll, I'll give you the 30-second uh, recap. Uh, this experiment tested human obedience to strangers. So these people went into a room. They were told to shock someone else when they didn't get a, a question right to a or an answer right to a question. And 65% of the people wound up shocking the person in the other room up to 450 volts, which is lethal, uh, despite the person in the other on the other side of the wall pounding, begging to be let out, saying they have a heart condition, and saying they no longer want to participate in the experiment. 65% murdered another human being because a man in a gray lab coat told them to. These people were actors uh, on the other side of the wall, right? Yes. And uh, they yeah. were trying to determine how could so many good people commit horrendous acts during the Holocaust, from my memory, or maybe somebody else made that connection. No, no, no. That was uh, Dr. Stanley Milgram who did the experiment. Uh, his parents were were Jewish in Germany and, and fled, and they survived. But he's watching the w- war trials, uh, the Nuremberg trials where these German officers would say, I was just following orders. And he wanted to see whether or not just following orders was an actual thing, if, if that's a real thing. And 65% of us will not, not only just follow orders, but will commit murder in less than 30 minutes because a stranger told us to. So name me a persuasion tactic that's listed somewhere that's more powerful than that. I, I don't think it exists. So I, I think authority is exponentially more powerful than any kind of persuasion skill on the planet. And uh, it's it's seriously overlooked that, I mean, using all these like covert uh, hypnosis techniques or persuasion skills, how, I mean, could would you be able to talk a stranger into killing someone? So that's why I think authority is is not just uh, important when we're talking about people following orders, but authority matters in social situations too. When we, when our, the unconscious part of our brains see someone else as having authority or recognize some kind of social authority, there's an obedience switch that gets triggered in our brain. And Dr. Stanley Milgram called this the agentic shift named after the word agent. It's to where a person no longer uh, assigns responsibility for their actions on themselves, but they put responsibility for their actions on the person who has the authority in that situation. So just if you want a little more lighthearted example, so there are, uh, we get triggered. The human brain has five triggers that trigger an obedience, an automatic I will obey uh, part of the brain. And this is, I have a book coming out in December that exposes all of this and dissects it all and teaches you how to do all this stuff. Um, but just to kind of get a more lighthearted example of this, in Texas, they did a research where this, uh, this guy uh, would cross a crosswalk in busy downtown street. And they did this in New York City as well. So and waiting for a crosswalk to, to turn green or allow the people to cross. You know, especially in New York, there's a large crowd there waiting. Um, So they had a guy in a T-shirt and blue jeans standing there at the crosswalk. And just as soon as no cars were coming, he broke the signal uh, when it said don't walk. And he went ahead and crossed the street. You know, two or three people uh, would would follow him and kind of go across the street. And they did this hundreds of times. It was pretty much the same results every time. So then this guy went and gets a 
manicure, goes and gets a really good haircut, gets his eyebrows plucked, puts on like a $10,000 suit. So he looks like a million bucks. He doesn't say a word. He goes back to the exact same crosswalks and increases his the people who follow him by, I think, 480%. Just the people are willing to walk just because he walked and he was wearing a suit and he looked really nice. So they he triggered an obedient state in other people just by the way he looked, just his appearance alone, and maybe his movement, the confidence in, in the way he walked. Um, but he got people to break the law without saying a word. I think this is fascinating because in certain ways, suits are arbitrary. And, and what I mean by that is like at some point in time, culture determined that suits were associated with power, right? And it could have been something else. It could have been a different type of attire, but we've been conditioned to associate. I think some of these things are more innate, right? I think things, in my opinion, you can speak up if you disagree, things like uh, having upright posture, uh, not having a lot of tension in your body, because when we're nervous or feel like we're being judged, we tend to carry more tension. Holding eye contact, smiling oftentimes is associated with being relaxed, but or voice. When people are nervous, uh, they tend to increase their rate of speech because they're worried somebody might walk away, uh, their pitch goes up. But a lot of these things that that I think are more more innate, but something like a suit <laughs> or the car somebody drives or the neighborhood that they live in or the college that they went to, they also have a profound impact on the way that people react to them. I remember I had this, this interview that I did. It was the first time I ever did live TV. There's two hosts, a guy and a girl, and the guy had a like very strong personality and he would speak and I would cut him off and then push sort of my ideas forward. And after during there's a break in the middle and he was on his laptop doing a few things. He paused for a second and he looked at me and said, where did you go to college? And I said, I went to Columbia. And he goes, that makes sense. And I thought it was really fascinating because what he was reacting to was my non-verbals and my verbals. I mean, I was wearing t-shirts and jeans. Uh, so I was, I dressed really relaxed on the TV show. So it wasn't my, my dress that he was reacting to. He was reacting to my body language and my voice and my ability to fight for my ideas. And, and it wasn't like a, a super confrontational, uh, interview, but it could be felt and he could feel it. And he reacted to it. And I always found that fascinating because like I, I dropped out of Columbia and I started Crafter Christmas. Uh, I didn't talk to him about that, but like go, going to Columbia didn't give me the ability to uh, communicate and fight for my ideas. It was these other things that you talked about earlier. It was uh, developing competency in this area. Uh, it was having discipline in this area, developing leadership. Like it was these other foundations that gave me the ability to communicate these things that he was reacting to. And he was using these other variables to justify it. But if I would have gone into the interview and he would have known some of these things, uh, some of these other things about my life, that also might have intimidated him and affected his behavior. And caught. So I just, uh, it made me think of that interview. And I thought there's a connection here. And that's really cool. That's funny that he would say that makes sense. Uh, Out of anything he said, yeah, I was sort of shocked. 
That's really cool. And there's one other thing. Uh, I mean, there's several, but there's one big thing that uh, you didn't mention that I'll also mention on those nonverbals. And that is slowness of movement. That's one thing that we teach uh, when I teach uh, government people is that the speed of the body movement should be as if your body is moving underwater. And this goes all the way down to the subconscious signals you're sending to other people. It gets all the way down to the speed that, that your eyelids close and open to indicate how truthfully confident you are. Not how good you can fake it and just move your arms a little bit slow, but it gets all the way down to how fast your eyelids close and reopen, which we call shutter speed. Why is that? Why is slowness important? Slowness indicates comfort in the moment. So if you think about a, uh, a Great Dane walking through a shopping mall and looking around at other people, it's a really slow movement. The dog's pretty confident. And you think about like really small dogs have rapid jerky movements. And those evolved after millions of years. Humans, I mean, humans are similar. I just wanted to give kind of a more fun example of it. Uh, like a little chihuahua has those rapid movements that evolve to ward off predators over the years. That's also another reason in humans as well, the phrase small dogs bark the most applies to dogs and humans. Yeah, so it's reaction, right? People, when the people feel nervous or they feel there's threats in their environment, they react. And when they feel like things in their environment or people in their environment are not threats, they're going to be less reactionary and it's going to show up in slowness of movement. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's not just being reactionary. It's being uh, fear by itself will make your movements really quick so that your, your, your fight or flight response starts activating in a social environment. For instance, if you have social anxiety and that adrenaline spikes up and makes all of your movements faster and more jerky, ostensibly to get you to respond faster to a predator attacking you. Yeah, we, we often say in our classes that how you're feeling manifests in your body movements and your choices. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Something else that as I pull all these things that you're talking about together, well, I mean, not all of them, but at least these like five things, and I didn't intend to spend so much time on them, but I think that they're so useful for somebody who's trying to figure, they're looking for a roadmap on what to do next. And But if somebody's looking for a roadmap, it provides a really clear roadmap to get uh, on track and what happens is if you follow these processes your status will innately increase but it will come from like an internal place and this has a, a very close correlation to attraction if you're a guy and, and you're on a date and a woman doesn't respect you she's not going to go home with you right and, and i don't mean respect in like uh she's going to do everything that you say there needs to be some level of admiration or there has to be a perception of value. They have to perceive you as being valuable in some way to be willing to follow you. When they follow you, they're essentially following you into the unknown, right? Whether they're following you back to your place or they're following you into a relationship or they're following you into marriage and you're going to build a family in life. Like they're, they're essentially following you and there's some of this on both ends, like you have to have the same, it might not be the same things that you respect or value your partner for, but if you don't value and respect your partner and that isn't real, it's going to manifest and it's going to show up and it's going to cause problems in the relationship. hundred percent. 
And I'd say, you know, those five traits that I just talked about are what we call the, the five traits that, that are authority traits. And one thing that I've always said is that authority creates trust and trust is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Yeah, I, lo I love this. I absolutely love this. In our classes, when we talk about connection, it's hard when you distill something as complicated as the way that we feel into sort of like some type of framework that people can try to think about the problems through. We talk about attraction, a perception of value. When someone perceives someone or something as valuable, they try to get close to it. Usually first they see it, then they try to get close to it, then they try to touch it, and then they try to hold it. And we talk about comfort. When somebody feels comfortable around something, or someone, they will allow them to get close to them. And that's where trust, from our perspective, trust comes in. And then the, the third is sexual tension, because you can't create, like you can build a bond through those first two, but if you can't, if you don't have sexual tension, then like you're not gonna be able to sustain a romantic or sexually intimate relationship. At some point it's going to, if you don't really like the person that you are attracted to, or you're not in a headspace where you feel like you can be open sexually, or these things manifest, in our choices and our behavior and and you'll communicate to that partner and they will they will check out i have another question for you if somebody is looking to connect with another person maybe it's that they want to make more friends maybe uh they've been dating and one of the things that they're going to feedback is the person that they're dating didn't feel connected with them what are some things that people can do so that they can more deeply connect with others and communicate that they want to connect with other people. Because I think, I think that innately as human beings, we want to connect with other people, but sometimes we get shit happens. Things get fuzzy. Life gets fuzzy. Our emotions get sort of screwed up. We have trauma. We have different things going on and we mix up those messages. So what is, what can somebody do if they want to connect more deeply with other people and communicate that? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. I remember uh, in my personal history, I was 20 years old or so, and I was a total douchebag. Uh, I will fully admit that. I was just a self-absorbed, uh, just crappy person. And, I, you know, I was, I've been in the military since I was 17. And this uh, this dude who's just like the, the nicest guy in the world and he was like a champion bodybuilder, a huge guy. Throws me up against a wall one day and just scared the crap out of me. And he was like, bro, you don't have to try to act so fucking cool all the time. And that's all he said. And then he let me go. And that stuck with me forever, man. And that sent me on like a journey of self-discovery that uh, really changed me a lot as a person. So I would say uh, the first thing for, for anybody that's trying to connect with somebody is get over yourself first and be vulnerable, be comfortable talking about uh, negative things in your past, be comfortable uh, laughing at yourself and talk to strangers as much as you can. If you're in the grocery checkout line, start talking to someone, make it a point to discover something really cool about everybody you meet. Even if it's a barista at Starbucks or the lady checking out your groceries, uh, no matter what, I would say try to try to discover everyone's story, even if you only have a few seconds and just ask them something about themselves. So get comfortable talking to strangers first. And when you start getting into these conversations, 
there's a big difference. A lot of people, you know, in the, like the earlier stages of maturity development, especially people that are kind of adolescent, they want to talk about themselves the most. So they want to make the other person feel interested in who they are. And what either you can wait 20 years to discover this or you can just take my word for it now. It's 10 times more powerful to make the other person feel like they are interesting to you. So that's the big debate, the interested versus interesting. And it took me a long time to realize that. And I hope I hope you guys can learn from from my mistake. What are a few things that somebody can do in order to make sure that they are communicating this effectively? So I would say develop, no matter, I don't care how you do it, but develop a genuine interest in other people to where you're not just asking job interview questions. Uh, what do you do? Where are you from? That kind of thing. But you're asking genuine things. You ask like, well, when's the last time you took a vacation? Or if you ask, what do you do for a living? What's your favorite part about that? What do you really like about it? What's one of the really cool things you guys have, have worked on? It's a really interesting job. So get in there and like watch interviews with uh, talk show hosts, especially guys like Conan O'Brien or guys that, that are just really champion interviewers that really dig into someone's past. They, they are in, completely checked into that moment. They're not living behind their eyes. They're not overly obsessed with how they're coming off in a conversation. They're just there. And they're fully checked into the conversation. They're present in the moment and they're genuinely concerned and interested in the other person that they're speaking with. Going back to that example I used earlier where the dating coach was talking about pulling the conversation back to subjects that that he knew very well or telling the audience to do the same. And... I was like thinking as I was listening, that's not what all the people I know who are great socially, that's not what they do. They they are infinitely interested in the people around them and they feel that, right? Like the people that they're interacting feel like this person wants to understand who they are and that's how they build those connections. Yeah, that's what they call that, that Bill Clinton uh, energy field or uh, I think that's what they call it. Someone feels like you're the most important person in the world when you're interacting with them. Yeah. And I, I had a, I have a friend of mine who uh, spent maybe two hours with Bill Clinton. And he said Bill Clinton talked about himself for maybe five to ten minutes out of two hours. And he said he felt so cool. Bill Clinton made him feel so interesting and so cool. And when when Bill Clinton was just fully connected, like eye to eye, like there's that happiness eye contact, he said Bill Clinton was talking about how his aunt uh, made grilled cheeses. And he said just this conversation about how grilled cheeses were made was the most interesting thing in the world. It was just it, it was so present and so real and connected that you, you just literally feel like there's no one else there. I had a friend of mine who told me another story about Bill Clinton and how he he was a police officer who had gotten shot a couple of times while in the line of duty and ended up getting a medal from from a couple of different presidents and one of them was Bill Clinton. And so he ended up he, he got to know some of the Secret Service officers and next time they were in town they hit him up and and they went to this house and Bill Clinton was there and uh, they were going to meet the the president at the time. He had met him before and he goes 
He immediately knew my name. He remembered uh, interacting with me because he did something when they were interacting. I think he told me that he handed him, he had like a police officer baseball card or something and he handed him his card and he goes, uh, hanging around him just felt so natural and comfortable. I'm I'm like, I'm hanging out with the most powerful man in the world. And I'm just like, his response, I mean, this guy is like a very gritty, you think of like sort of a, a gritty, like hyper-masculine law enforcement officer. And he, his response was like, I forget how he phrased it, but something about he wasn't surprised about the the dress and the Oval Office and all that crap. I, I forget <laughs> I forget how he, how he phrased it, but he's just like, that guy is like, when you're around him, I felt so comfortable and he was the most pow- powerful man in the world at the time. And I just felt so important and comfortable and relaxed around him. It's like it was still hard for me to believe. That was the key. He didn't feel like he was with someone who was important. He felt important. That's such a huge distinction. I'm glad. Yeah. Interesting way to put that, too. And I would say one more thing when it comes to uh, this charisma and connection with another person. If you think about like... um, if you ever have have had that thought, like if I make too much eye contact, it's going to feel threatening. Everyone's kind of wondered about that, right? Imagine how much eye contact you would make if you were really concerned about the other person with a genuine concern and you smiled and you smiled with your eyes. You can double the amount of eye contact and double the amount of connection just by smiling and being interested. It's no longer threatening. But since we're on the subject of human needs, like this need for importance, so what are some of the other needs that the people around us are, are essentially craving? And I wonder if you could talk about those and then maybe how can listeners sort of use the things that we've talked about, some of the things that you teach to improve their interactions and different aspects of, of their social and romantic life, like by sort of recognizing and acknowledging these needs? I would say the number one Uh, that you need to look for. If you're talking to another person, you need to figure out what makes them feel significant. First question in your head, especially if you're trying to connect genuinely with another person. So think about the guy that the guy with the giant pickup truck that's weaving in and out of traffic. That's got like the big thing that blows smoke, just like the most obnoxious shit you could possibly imagine. And then instead of seeing him as a douchebag, Force yourself to start seeing everyone, including people like that. I mean, I'm just using him as an example because that's the hardest thing to do. Uh, Force yourself to see that person's needs. Force, like this guy has a strong desire to be significant and for others to acknowledge how uh, unusual and how powerful he is. And something probably happened in his childhood. Maybe he's the youngest of a bunch of boys and he got his his butt whooped a lot when he was going through school. Um, So think about like this behavior is the result of some kind of suffering, childhood suffering or an attempt to avoid some kind of suffering as an adult. So what suffering would this person feel if he didn't have this truck or if no one acknowledged how powerful he was, this person would suffer. So every conversation uh, try to try to get that. So what makes this person feel significant? And then listen for where is this person looking for either appreciation, approval, or acceptance? Because it will be one of those three. And if, if you listen closely to any conversation, 
you're going to hear those questions right in between the lines there. Please accept me. Please approve of me. Or something like that. When I think about this, I hadn't really thought about it through the lens that you're saying. But one of the things I've recognized when I'm interacting with people is that every person has a way that they want to be seen. And recognizing what that is. And, and there's all these different clues by whether it's the way the stories that we tell, it is the the way that we dress, the places we choose to frequent or hang out or the people that we associate with careers that we go into. I mean, there's a way that people want to be seen. And when you see them like that, a lot of the stuff you're talking about is some of the deeper stuff that is related to this. Um, that tends to garner connection, right? Like I, I use an example. I hope maybe this will bring this home. Going back to that same Harvard Yard story. This this guy, I was talking to him about connection and he would validate the girls that he was dating or validate his girlfriend and he'd be like, oh, that's cool or that's great or I think that's awesome because he read in a book that you should validate. Actually, this was uh, several months later we had this conversation because now that I'm thinking about it, he he texted me and then we, we jumped on the phone and we talked and I said, you know, it gets a lot deeper than that. I'm like, that's the superficial stuff, right? The superficial forms of, or, or the first levels of validation, like I'm facing something or I'm trying to get close to it or I'm talking about it or I'm fixated on it or um, if I'm acknowledging it, I'm saying like, oh, I like your shirt. I like your new haircut or I think that you're a great person or I think that you're cool or I think that you're smart. Then I'm like, there's this deeper level. I'm like, I'll use an example. Like, let's say that there is a girl that you're on a date with and I'm like you're a pretty educated guy but let's say that she is an undergrad and she is 27 and you sense that there's some level of insecurity about that and you say well why are you still in college if you're 27 like what, what do you why are you still an undergrad and she'll she says well like I wanted to go to college but my grandma was sick and my parents both work full-time and they couldn't take care of her. And so my grandma had cancer. So for several years, I just took care of my grandma. And it wasn't until she passed away that I was able to go back and focus on myself. And she's opening up about something that she, in this example, the girl's opening up about something that she feels and care about. And it is incredibly important that you recognize and validate her for what is really important and, and how would a person potentially do this? And, and let me know if you have a different perspective on this. But I told the guy, I said, look, if you have a situation like this, then tell her, you know, I think that makes you really special. A lot of people when they're in their early 20s, you could say when I was in my early 20s or my late teens, I was so self-absorbed. I would have had a hard time doing something like that. I probably wouldn't have done it. I hope that I would, but I probably wouldn't have done it. And I don't think a lot of people would. That just shows like, I, I think that's really awesome that you did that. And it says so much about your priorities. And I'm so, I'm so amazed that you made that choice, that you put your family in front of yourself. And, and I really admire you for that or something like that. I mean, I guess it could be phrased a lot, a lot better and you could not compare uh, to other people. Or, I mean, there's different ways to, to phrase this, but the more important message is seen somebody as they want to be seen because her choice to take care in this example of 
her dying grandma is a significant choice. And it goes back to this idea of seeing how somebody would want to be seen. And this comes across in so many nuanced ways. I mean, that's the first example that popped up in my mind in that conversation. And as a consequence, it popped up now. But does this bring up sort of anything uh, that resonates with you? Yeah, and I, I love that you that you brought that up. It's, it's such a good example, too. I, ha- I just posted on uh, social media a few days ago a quote uh, from my upcoming book that's, uh, if you want to change your life, treat people as if they were actually the person they portray themselves as, they want to be seen as. And that is so, so true. Uh, because ripping someone's social mask off might feel really cool, uh, but you're only going to get negative reactions from it. And if you if you treat that social mask like it is the real person's face, you're 10 times more likely for them to take it off later in the conversation. And that's a big deal. To some extent, having some level of social mask is normal. <laughs> There's the statue in the Met that, I mean, they have statues all over the world that sort of encompass this, but I'm thinking about one in particular at the Met in New York City. And it's an African statue that has these nails that are, or spikes that are coming out of the statue in every direction. And I was with a friend of mine who was my literature professor in college. And she was saying that uh, the idea behind that statue is that we all have traumas and we use those traumas to protect. Uh, They become the spikes and we use them to protect ourselves. So like whether it's traumas or cultural conditioning or whatever, there, there is some level of social masking that is normal, but if you're ever going to build a connection with someone, you have to get the, you got to get past that. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. And uh, if I were to just give you a quick rundown, uh, social masks are valuable uh, for us to basically function in a normal society. And Every once in a while, in a really genuine, authentic conversation, the mask comes off. But what's funny is that if you become the person that takes your mask off and your behavior is already contagious, in, uh, I think this is a Jim Carrey quote, uh, in a world where everyone's wearing a social mask, when one person doesn't wear a mask, everything starts to feel like I have a mask on. The mask that other people are wearing, if you don't have yours on, gets heavier and heavier. And one one way to help somebody kind of open up and just be more authentic, instead of complimenting them on how authentic they are, which is a little strange at the beginning of a conversation, just talk about how rare it is to meet someone who's genuinely authentic and just open. You don't have to say that it's them. And they'll just agree with you and they'll start behaving more authentic just because they agreed with you. So you've got them to agree into what we call a consistency frame. And just that, them agreeing that authentic people are really rare to meet will make them start behaving in a more authentic way and connect a little bit deeper. Well, I guess it goes back to what we were talking about earlier around validation. And when somebody respects you or likes you or wants you and you set up a frame like that, they want your validation, they'll begin to act out in that way. So the example I think of is like in school, right? If someone acts out and they tell jokes and you tell them they're really funny and they seem like they're being validated for that, they'll act, they'll try to act out and, and try to 
display the funny parts of their personality. It builds their self-esteem and gets them more likely to act that way. If you tell them they're really smart and you give them stars on a board and they feel like they are part of their validation as being the person who reads the most books in their class, they'll continue to do that. And so in this case, you're, you're letting the person know that like authenticity is important. And as a consequence, like they start to act more authentic, which is really funny because in some ways it's like counterintuitive because it almost works against the idea, but it gets you to, to the desired outcome. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And when, if you're the kind of guy that's got all of these five traits and you're the kind of guy with that social authority, just naturally, you can just, you can say something as simple as, wow, I met this person the other day and they were so just connected. They checked in, they listened in the conversation. They were just such a great conversationalist. And you compliment a, a complete stranger that the person you're speaking to doesn't even know. You giving that compliment and having that authority will make that person start to exhibit all of those behaviors just to just to please you. I would go on forever with you, but I know that I'm running out of time. This is an absolutely awesome chase. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Hopefully we can get you to come back and do this again. We might even be able to get some questions from the audience. I feel like that would be interesting. Uh, but if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Chase, we're going to put some links in the description of the podcast and on our website so that you can learn about him more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks, Chris. It was great to be here, man. I had fun. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.